Thompson will be splitting this up. It's audacious deceivers. This is Peter's description of these false teachers, uh, and he goes a bit on the offensive here. He's, he's diving straight in uh, to tell the church exactly uh, who they are. Uh, boldness, though, they are very bold. They're audacious, and boldness can often quiet disagreement even when someone's confidence is ungrounded. Uh, years ago, and this is when I was a teenager, I was returning from Charlotte, North Carolina with my family. Uh, due to the size of our family, there was a host of us, and some would say too many of us, but either way, we were coming back from Charlotte, and due to the size of the family and the fact that my older brother wanted to drive his new car, uh, my brother Anthony and I were riding with our older brother, Billy. Uh, he's in India right now, so uh, he's the, the brunt of this story, but he can't hear it, so no big deal. Uh, unless my mom tells on me, I'm fine. Um, Well, we were following my dad, um, but we missed the exit that he took. Uh, I won't say that he was blazing ahead and Billy couldn't keep up, but whatever it was, he took the exit, we missed it, and so we went to the next exit. Common sense dictates, we're about 30 minutes on our trip, Uh, common sense dictated that we would turn around and we would get on that exit and go home. My brother Billy knew his way home. I had driven this road uh, multiple times just to connect with another generation. Uh, This is at the time when nobody carried cell phones and there was no GPS. And due to the fact that we were all teenagers, we had no map in the car. So that's where we're at. But we know where we're going. We're not worried. He knows his way. Uh, Unfortunately, we pulled off at this next exit and there was a sign up that said 64. And Uh, My brother Billy, with his vast 18-year-old knowledge, said 64 goes through Richmond, which is true if you're on Interstate 64. Um, This was not Interstate 64. This is when I learned the the difference between a blue sign and a white sign. Uh, There is a drastic difference. So uh, in the effort to not waste 15 minutes, and I think in his mind beat his own father home, we went blazing down 64. Anthony and I both said, don't you think we should turn around? He says, I know where I'm going. And being brothers, younger brothers, we believed him. Uh, He was confident. He was bold. And so off we went. In my mind, I'm envisioning a 15-minute shorter trip than my dad is going to be on. We're going to beat my parents and the rest of the family home. We did get home 13 hours later. (laughs) I want you to realize the kicker here. We bought a map When we hit the Atlantic Ocean, 10 hours later, um, we could go no further east unless his, I call legalized go-kart, it was an eagle talon, that's like riding on the asphalt, all the way there, Uh, unless it turned into a boat, we couldn't go further east, so we, we bought a map there, and we found our way home from Virginia Beach. Uh, It was definitely the scenic route. Uh, I still remember, and I'll give my brother Billy this, We were past the five-hour mark, and he was still confident that we were on the right road (laughs) and going. Um, It was, I remember, two Mountain Dews for me and one speeding ticket for Billy later. I can't remember what Anthony was drinking, but it it was all the way there. Was he confident? Yes, he was. Was he convincing? He was. Was he completely wrong? Yes, he was. Uh, But because Anthony and I didn't know and had nothing with which to discern or evaluate Billy's confidence, we drove persistently in the wrong direction. And Peter does not want the church that he's writing to in Asia Minor, he doesn't want us uh, to fall prey 
to a confident false teacher. Someone who comes in and speaks boldly and speaks with assertion and speaks with knowledge and, and, and seems to know the answer to win the day. He didn't want the church to lack what they need to know about these false teachers and therefore to be sucked into their lies. He doesn't want you to be pulled in by audacious deceivers. Instead, he's sharing the truth so that they and we can discerningly see what and who a liar is and comprehend exactly what unfolds for them. He wants us, in essence, to have a map in our hand and to use that map so we can know what is the correct direction. Now, we remember in the previous verses, because Second Peter is a, a, a book or a letter of caution. First Peter deals with this comfort as you face persecution. Second Peter has a lot of similarities, but it's this idea of caution. There are false teachers. He's leading to it. He spent chapter one building on what is secure, what is our salvation, and what do we base our truth on, and that closes with the Word of God, 1 Peter 16 through 22. Now, in the previous church uh, verses of chapter 2, Peter made clear that God's wrath is poured out on these false teachers, that they currently sit under God's wrath, and that's just to let us understand and help us understand that God's not kidding when it comes to false teachers, that God is not casual, that God is not compromising, and we live in an age where we tend to want to give people their place or give them an opportunity or, well, let's let them have their viewpoint. God says absolutely not. If they're lying, they're liars, and you don't condone or compromise. And then he promised that his rescue is secured for his church, for believers. So now as he transitions to expose false teachers for who they are, Peter makes clear that the church, in following their Savior, their head, will, and as John MacArthur writes, take an aggressive stand against false teachers and their doctrines. This is somewhat of not the side issue, but something that I want you to note in your mind as the church in the United States, and I would say around the Western world, and, and as I'm traveling around the world, I'm seeing it everywhere, we are compromisers. We have become a church that is willing to let everyone have a view or to find the good in somebody. And I'm not saying being a nasty, judgmental person, uh, the scripture never condones that or being obnoxious, but we have, we've given too much credence to false teachers. We found too many little hints or nuggets that are there that come out as wrong. And in my own life, I'm trying to balance um, not being a critical person, but being a discerning person. Because you encounter things even in places you wouldn't expect, and someone is teaching something. I heard something this weekend, and someone said something, and it sounds very nice, but it was unbiblical. It was a pastor. And you're listening to this, and you think, that's not in Scripture. It's actually the opposite of Scripture. But everyone's amening and everyone's fine with it. The problem is we're not calling out false teaching. And, and the reality is Peter is showing us that we need to have an aggressive stand against false teachers and their doctrine. We will not cower nor compromise even though they are audacious deceivers because we know who they are and recognize the lies they speak because we apply God's truth to them. Not our emotions and not our opinion, but we put God's truth in front. And that's where Peter is driving in. And where chapter one was building on what is secure, he's now taking the offensive and saying, this is who they are. 
Let's stop pretending. So in these verses, he is going to expose their bombastic words and actions to make sure their drastic and dramatic emotions do not sway the church. You know that, right? Someone gets very emotional. They tend to control the situation. That can be whether it's tears or it's anger or it's this self-righteous, you've been oppressing me. There's a thousand ways people control the situation with emotions. False teachers do the same thing. And so Peter's saying, I don't want the church swayed by emotions. I want them moved by truth. And so he begins by warning of the false teacher's pretentiousness. And what I mean by that is they assume to have more authority, power, and importance than they actually possess. They're presumptuous, acting arrogantly, disrespectfully, and running past any limit of what is appropriate. So Peter writes, presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. And by dignities, he's referring to angels. And it's hard to know from the context whether that is holy angels or fallen angels, but either way, beings that are more powerful than we are. Whereas angels, now he's referring to holy angels, which are greater in power and might than us and over fallen angels, bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness. And here's what he's saying. They make boastful claims of superiority against angels. And the context we have in scripture is that is either fallen angels or even holy angels there. The arrogant and falsely positioned confidence has them making irrationally bold assertions and accusation against those superior in power than themselves. And I want you to understand what is the heart behind that. Because we see people who foolishly make these kind of claims. I remember years ago, Heather and I worked uh, with the college and career class. So we were on the campus of, at the time, the College of Mary Washington. Now it's the whatever, whatever its name is, University of something, University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg. And I remember we worked, there was a lot of, of girls on the campus. So we're there at, at, this, um, at this gathering for, for kids, and there's about 20 20 kids were working with there, and one girl had on this thing, Satan is something. It was just a, a trite remark against Satan. And the sad thing is, is that's not a biblical approach to speaking of Satan. Um, that's speaking ill of fallen angels. Now, I don't think this young lady understood what she was doing, but false teachers will come out with these bombastic statements of superiority. Uh, they can slay the devil, and they can drive him out, and they can do all these things, and they, they create a persona about themselves. And it seems like they're against wrong, but the reality is it, it depicts their heart because their arrogance is on display. And what they're saying it goes all the way back to that, that idea of undermining Christ's authority because they think they're at the level that they're not. They think they can tell Satan to do whatever he wants and that they are in charge of fallen demons and or can speak slightingly of God's holy angels that do his work and in the spiritual realm. It's another manifestation of their disregard for Christ's authority and his lordship. They are 
overlooking the fact that God reigns. Why? Why do they elevate themselves? Why speak this way, even of fallen angels in this context? Because they want to bring themselves up. They want to be God and understand the danger of that disposition. It was wrong for them to do this, even if they're referring to fallen angels. An implication you get when you read through the book of Jude. See, in contrast, holy angels, more powerful and mighty than humans and fallen angels, don't bring personal accusations against fallen angels. Instead, as Jude notes, they speak only from the Lord's perspective. Jude notes that Michael, the archangel, which he fought when he fought against Satan over Moses' body, gives you an idea of the spiritual battle that's taking place even in ancient times, even during the Old Testament, did not invoke his own power, but instead said, the Lord rebuke thee. What do other people do? Act with pretentiousness. Pretend that they have power they do not have. Even, I would say, if you're breaking power down into a hierarchy, Michael is the second most powerful being in the spiritual realm. God alone above that. Yet he does not rebuke Satan himself, but it says the Lord rebuke thee. Why? Because he has submitted himself to the kingship of Christ of God. And so when somebody else speaks out in a wrong way with arrogance, they are saying, not just being trite, like Satan cares what you say in that context. Like you have power over him in and of yourself. But what you're saying to everyone is that I am God. I am the one who can say and speak in this way. It speaks to their arrogance yet again. False teachers ignore that reality. They brazenly demean the spiritual world and its reality because they cannot see and touch it, elevating themselves above it and carelessly blaspheming God and angels. It reveals something about them. It reveals that they are ignorant and emotional. Peter compares them to natural brute beasts. And he's not saying they're a beast like they're a beast on a football field. He's saying they're a dumb animal. They are completely irrational. They act on instincts only. And in the end, what does an animal that is farmed good for? Well, it's good for hauling a plow and it's good for steak, right? So it depends how you want to break it down. And that's what he says. They're not rational. They're not intellectual. They, they contribute nothing to society in the sense of spiritual knowledge. And they definitely don't contribute anything to the church. The end for such animal behavior is only destruction, confidently talking against what they do not understand because their arrogant approach reveals their ignorance and they find themselves under God's wrath and they face eternal punishment because of it. MacArthur notes this, those who dedicate themselves to false doctrine, exhibiting a presumptuous approach to spiritual things, will eternally be punished for their transgressions. What we are to discern is that they are self-assured yet ignorant, reviling the spiritual realm because of their foolish pride and pretense. They sound authoritative. This is the caution I put out. When someone speaks and their authority is not from God and it's not from God's word, you have a huge red flag. 
That's the gist of it. If Michael, the archangel, is only going to say the Lord rebuked thee, and he is much more powerful, and actually more powerful than Satan in that context, but says only the Lord rebuked thee, then if anyone stands up to teach from their own authority or has a hint of their own authority, you have a clear indication that they are a false teacher. When they spin Scripture for their own good, they are a false teacher. They're self-assured, but they are ignorant. They sound authoritative, but really are engaging in petty opposition to the one true authority. Don't miss who they're fighting against. They're wrestling against God and his right to reign. There is only one king, and it's not you and I. It is Christ alone. God reigns and no one else. They do this as an act of rebellion against God's authority, against our Savior Jesus Christ. Bold claims are made of spiritual superiority, dangerous and foolish claims, which I think is a cover for what they really do, what is coupled with, and I put their perversion. This is 13b through 14. They are twisted and wicked in the everyday practice of their lives. You may not see it and you may not know it, and they're going to talk through this, but they are perverse. They're twisted. There is a, there's a manipulation to gain in the temporal existence in this earthly life. As Peter has already noted, they shall receive the reward of unrighteousness. He now continues explaining, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. And don't miss that. It's a key point of what Peter's saying. They do evil publicly. It says, spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart that have exercised with covetous practices. And I want us to hear this in a different way. They have hearts trained in greed, or to word it differently, they've trained their hearts to only be greedy. And that word for greed, I know what we do. We move right to money, which oftentimes it is about money. But in this word, in the Greek, this greed is everything you can think of. It's greed for what you want. It's immorality, it's finances, it's power, it's fame. You list it, that's the word for greed. It is a more general reference, and they've trained themselves for it. And then he says this, they're cursed children or accursed children. And what we find is this, they are publicly perverse. I recently read in a book about this time that um, according to historians, they say this pagan Roman society tolerated dissipation and revelry as long as it was discreetly confined to the cover of darkness. Let me say that in less big words and confusing language. Roman society said, if you're going to act up, make sure we don't see you. I don't want to notice it. Do it at night. Do your drinking, reveling, drunkenness, parties. Make sure it takes place at night. But when we wake up in the morning, let's make sure the streets are clean and let's make sure things are back to normal. They frowned on and disapproved of debauchery during the daytime when it could be viewed by everyone. This is pagan society. Unbelieving society, Peter is saying, would have disapproved of much of the behavior exhibited by the false teachers. Teachers who then became an embarrassing stain and disease on the church. Spots and blemishes on who? On the church. Why? Because they exercise their filth 
in church meals. I'm not saying it was chilly after church, but there was always a meal after communion. So they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, and Paul talks about then having a meal for everyone to eat afterwards. These wicked people come in with their pride, arrogance, and permissive lifestyle and, and broadcast that, twist and turn, while the church is celebrating the meal after partaking of the Lord's Supper. And so they become a stain on the church, not on themselves. They're spots and blemishes there. See, Peter is, is driving the church, this is a caution, but he's driving them to action. And he's saying, don't let this happen. We don't sit casually back here. They flaunted their doctrine and lifestyle, and it was an embarrassment to the church, something they should be ashamed of allowing. Because when we see spot and blemish, we think shame on them. And Peter's trying to say, shame on the church for letting that persist there. That's not all. They're also privately perverse. This is, I think, a convicting verse that comes in because our temptation is to see every false teacher and think of their, of their private perversion. But here's a warning to our own hearts to examine ourselves for the same private perversion perversion there. Every contact, and he uses it in this context, every contact with a woman was twisted in their mind into an immoral imagination. And he didn't say some, he says every. The idea of objectifying them brought in that principle out, and everything you look and touch is twisted in your mind for a moral imagination, whatever that may be. They were unable which is very true of sin, to satisfy their desire for sin. It was an unquenchable thirst. It wasn't that they didn't have opportunity to engage in the sin. It's just that while engaging in what their filthy minds thought of, they could never be satisfied, which is a principle about sin. It will never be enough. Every opportunity taken to manipulate and trick others. It says they were beguiling, which means to catch with bait. In other words, they're fishing in that context. They're, they're luring people, people who are taking the bait because they're unstable, and so they jump for it. What unstable ones? This is not talking about the world. They're fishing in the church, and unstable people in the church are taking their bait, and so not only do they live where every interaction, and he's, he's tying it into this eyes for adultery, this idea that all they see, they manipulate in their mind for a twisted imagination, that while they're doing that, they're also throwing out the bait. What bait are they using? Well, they're tricking unstable souls, and right away we start feeling sorry for the unstable souls. I'm going to come back and say, don't be an unstable soul in church. Know God's word. That's why he started with that. You're not supposed to be an unstable soul. And the lure they're throwing out is their wicked lifestyle that unstable people find appealing. And so they bite the hook and they do that. You can't blame the person that fished for you. Blame yourself for biting the bait because the bait they used was not cloaked in righteousness. The bait they used is exactly what they are and who they are. Their whole existence, and this is critical, exercised or trained in materialism, in accruing for themselves, of gaining the specific illicit desire they craved, from money to immorality and everything in between and beyond. That's the word greed there. They trained for this. They dedicated heart and soul to excelling at their specific greed, hardening themselves to any conviction. 
William Barclay notes this, and he, he paints a really good picture of this word trained and how uh, it needs to re- rest in our mind. This is kind of the crux of their perversion. The picture, he says, is a terrible one. The word which is used for trained or exercised is the word which was used for an athlete exercising and training himself for the games, and that would be the Olympic games. So in your mind, you're thinking of a dedication like an Olympic athlete. And think what they have to do. I remember it was uh, speed skating, I think, Apollo Ono, and I remember reading about his life. He made millions of dollars, yet lived in the Olympic Village in Colorado, and he said, why? Focus. You're not distracted. Your diet's controlled. I want you to get in your mind, this is how they're working their heart. They're training like an Olympic athlete for one purpose. And when you look at an Olympic athlete, they train for one sport. They're they're zeroed in on that sport or that discipline. That's who they are. These people have actually trained and equipped and taught their minds and hearts to concentrate on nothing but the forbidden desire. They have deliberately fought with conscience until they have destroyed it. They have deliberately wrestled with God until they've thrown God out of life. They have deliberately struggled with their finer feelings until they've strangled them. They have deliberately trained themselves to concentrate on the forbidden things. Their lives have been a dreadful battle to destroy virtue and to train themselves in the techniques of sin. That's William Barclay's Look at the word train. That's what what Peter is saying. These people have put all of life into their sin. What they do is premeditated, not just a momentary lapse in judgment. This is what they had contrived to be and accomplish. And then I want to hit the pause button and say this. See, that's the difference between a habitual sin and sin you fall into. You want to know the difference? You work to have this sin happen in your life. Now, it seems drastic, and a lot of people are sitting there and saying, I don't have that much discipline for anything. I just want you to break down your life and see how you position your world to fit that. Peter justifiably identifies them as cursed children, connecting them to the dominating force in their lives, which was those who were cursed to hell, connecting them with the forces of evil of Satan. So if you go all the way back to their pretentiousness and speaking out against fallen angels most likely, and then you see that that response is only fitting for someone who is a servant of Satan. And I put, be careful how quickly you discount what you see and make yourself innocent of it. Take a moment to evaluate your life and make sure hints of these issues are not present. To put it in straightforward words, what are you training for? What do you give time to? Where are you dedicating your heart to? How have you hardened yourself to conviction? Those are things that tell you what you're training to be. If you hear the conviction of the gospel and you repetitively harden your heart, you're training to be an accursed child. To be part of Satan's camp because you are training to be rebellious. And you can look through the plethora of the sins there and you can notice tendencies. I'm going to assume that if you're sitting in church this morning that the likelihood of you training 24-7 in the sin is not there, I would hope is not there, or that it would be revealed to us and we could come alongside and help you. But where are the hints of this training? Where are these slight dedications where you're deviating from that? Now, ultimately, what they most desire becomes clear, and it's seen in their uh, priority. 
they make gain their focus. It is their premium. It says this, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb donkey speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet, which is a fascinating play on words. A donkey who cannot talk and is a brute beast is now speaking intelligently while the prophet who is supposed to be discerning what God has to say or God's have to say in his case is mad or insane or cannot speak intelligently. So Peter is in a very coy way saying the donkey seems human and the human seems donkey and hitting it in. But he starts it all off with an idea that's critical about them forsaking the right way. They are anti-scripture and he wants you to understand that. Everything we see in their life, from pretentiousness to perversion to their priority, and next week their preaching and their pitfall that we're going to dive into, everything has this undercurrent of rejecting authority, of battling authority. If you see in your life a lack of a willingness to submit to God's word and to submit to God's authority, right away you know there's false teaching in your heart. It might be teaching you're giving to yourself alone and haven't publicized it yet, but it's false teaching because they will forsake the right way. The right way in the Old Testament meant obedience to Scripture. The right way is God's way. In other words, they've forsaken God's way. Where do you find God's way? You find God's way in God's Word. They have forsaken God's teaching, and for this church in Asia Minor will be the Old Testament writings and some New Testament writings that are coming along. Peter affirms that uh, in his first letter. Uh, and second letter about Paul, but you you're see it, they're running from Scripture. They follow the wrong way because they are greedy. Money, power, and morality, greed for what they want. And then Peter does as he did uh, last, I want to say last week in the verses prior with his illustrations. Now we get the example of a guy named Balaam. Here's a prophet from a town of prophets a man petitioned by King Balak to curse Israel. Israel is coming into the promised land and Balak is seeing them and saying, wow, this is a lot of people. What do you do when you have a lot of people and you're involved in pagan worship? You go to, and there's, there's a lot of archaeological evidence that this town that Balaam lived in was a town of prophets. Hey, go to the town of prophets, hire yourself a prophet, and let's, let's see if he comes over. Now, Balaam was an interesting prophet in this plethora of false prophets, because there was an indication that God had spoken to him that does not make this man a believer, and you're going to realize in his outcome that he's not. Um, and, and numbers, you find that he's killed because he, he doesn't listen to God. But God used him. God still worked him, and that was known. And so here is Balak, and, and if you're Balak, you understand his wisdom. Huh, what prophet should I hire? Well, let's pick the prophet that apparently Maybe the God of Israel has spoken through. He seems to have some connection there, so he's brought in. Now, Balaam, and I might be telling a story that everyone knows, but it's good to walk through it again. Uh, Balaam is clearly told that he cannot curse Israel, yet he still manipulates the situation to be allowed to go. If you read it in Numbers, he's finagling, and then he goes back to ask God, and God says no, and he goes back to ask God, and God says no. And then he asks God again, and God says, yeah, sure, go. And you think, well, God gave him permission. No, he's constantly manipulating the situation. 
uh, to where we're going to get to this point. So multiple occasions, now he's journeying with, with the Balak's princess, and he's going to go curse Israel. On multiple occasions on the journey, an angel stands on the path, yet Balaam doesn't see the angel. This was no angel coming to bless him and carry him over the rocks. This was an angel set by God to kill him. And then God works through his donkey. The donkey does things to avoid the angel, goes off into a field, then crushes his leg. And what does Balaam do? Remember, he's mad. What do you do when your donkey crushes your leg or doesn't go where you want it to go? You whip it. You beat the thing. You're just going after it. And so I think we're coming on to the third time. And finally, the donkey, I think, just sits down and Balaam's beating him to death. And then what happens in the verse, he's rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice. Now Balaam is arguing with a, with a brute animal. He's conversing with the donkey, not even quite picking up on the fact that there's a miracle taking place. Now, when you read the whole account in Numbers, Balaam is not able to curse Israel directly as Balak desired. Balak gets frustrated with Balaam. Balaam stands up and says, I'm going to say what God says. And he blesses Israel. He blesses Israel. He looks at a part of Israel. He blesses Israel. And you think to yourself, ah, Balaam learned something from the donkey talking. Sadly, he does not. That's why he's the example there. Because what does he do in the context of Scripture? He later on advises the Midianites, to use moral corruption to ruin Israel. He ends up dying in God's prescribed judgment and punishment against the Midianites. Numbers 31.8, I'm going to read it, says this, And they slew the kings of Midian, besides the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, five kings of Midian. Balaam, also the son of Bor, they slew with the sword. In the middle of Midian, knows who God is blessing, has been spoken to by God to bless Israel and the net result of a donkey speaking to him and God speaking to him is I'm going to do whatever I can to get what I want. And his manipulation and greed cost him everything. Balaam had learned nothing from his donkey speaking, but instead tried to find a way around God's rule. Why? Because nothing ranked as high as his premium, which was gain. It was money. It was power. Uh, Many commentators list his life, and and he suggested immorality because he's an immoral person, and, and the whole pagan cult worship, he would have engaged in whatever his filthy mind wanted to have. And the same can be said of the false teachers. They will manipulate anything, even God's obvious commands and clear direction, to get what they want. And I want us to to rewind briefly because he highlights a portion. Something as blatant as a donkey audibly and sensibly talking to them will ultimately be ignored in their greedy pursuit of what they want. I think, and I won't have you raise your hand. I just want to see if you're awake. Then I know who's sleeping. But um, who here has pets? Think in your mind. I have too many pets. I have three dogs and four cats and five kids. None of which speak audibly. Just kidding. Uh, Could you imagine if this morning your dog was talking to you, not in the husky barking way that you think they're saying something, but I'm talking about literally just speaking to you, reprimanding you, and how that would resonate in your life, how you would never escape that. I can imagine you're 89 years old telling the story about how your dog talked to you. But when you're so consumed with what you want, you'll ignore even that in your life. You will walk away from something as obvious as an animal speaking to you. 
And we must be on the lookout for this behavior, yet also be on the lookout for this behavior in ourselves. Because you do have a very audible voice, a very clear word of God that cannot be ignored. You will not stand before God and say, yeah, but your Bible's a little confusing. Your word didn't have enough information in it. We've walked through Leviticus on Wednesday night, and we've actually seen how God's law addressed our current culture in a very emphatic way. It answers so many of the things that we think about. You have something as blatant as an animal speaking to you. There's nothing clearer than God's word for us, his church. Examine closely what you have been happy to ignore in pursuit of your own greed or your own way of life or what you're willing to accept in life. The fact is a lot of us will look at Scripture and say, yeah, I don't want to go that far. I don't want to be one of those people. I don't want to look like that. I don't want to be one of the peculiar people. Hey, the fact is you're missing on the, on the, on the animal speaking to you. It's that blatant to you, but you're willing to put a wedge in there and say, no, I don't want to listen to God because I want what I want, and that changes what I want, and so I will not listen. Look at your own heart for those times. We're going to pick, obviously, the rest of this up uh, next week as we look at what their preaching gives and then, sadly, what their pitfall will be, and their eternity is, is awful. But Peter wants us, the church, to be discerning of who false teachers are and not be swayed by their boldness. Don't be swayed by their confidence. He's exposing them for who they really are and calling on the church to not be weak and moved by the lies. Instead, he wants them to stand strong against false teachers, unmoved by their emotions. See them for who they are and respond accordingly. Recognize that they're pretentious. They undermine the weight of the spiritual world because they both willingly are ignorant of it and willfully rebellious against it. Their bold yet foolish response is yet another reflection of the rejection of Jesus's rightful authority in their life. You might look at this and say, well, why do I need to, why, why does Jesus have the rule? Why is he king? Why do I need to believe on him for salvation? Why did he need to die for my sins? Am I really that bad? The scripture says you are really that bad. You are sinful and you need Jesus Christ. And when we push back against that, we're pretentious. We think we're beyond God. He rules. It's his authority. He dictates. I don't care how weird that makes you feel to your friends. He reigns. Recognize as well our pretentious tendencies in our own hearts and run swiftly from them. As God reveals that, run from that pretentious. Recognize they're perverse. They've trained themselves to be hardened to any conviction and change, set on pursuing their wicked desire. So perverse that every interaction they have is manipulated for their immoral imaginations or manipulated to dupe ungrounded and unstable people in the church and beyond community. And then recognize that in yourself as well. Analyze how you view every interaction. Take how you interact with people made in God's image. Think about that and see if these tendencies have been sown in your own life. If in your heart, I know it's not going to be the full-grown tree, but is the seeds of this in your life and, and heart taking root, and then recognize their priorities. They are so consumed with their gain, their way, and their sin that they ignore the clear counsel of God 
They spurn God's word in pursuit of their greed. If I can say one thing again about God's word, if you just take it at what it says, try that out. Try that. Try it for a year. Try it for a day. Try it for a week. Just read God's word and take him for his word instead of twisting what he says so you can do what you want. And that's why I put recognize how you may do that as well. Take an honest look at what you pursue and see if that pursuit ignores a clear and obvious fact from God. And I put remember, Balaam ended up ignoring the reality that his donkey spoke audibly, and by the way, in his own language, to rebuke him, yet he still found a way to gain the wages of unrighteousness. And what does the New Testament tell us? The wages of sin is death. And Numbers 31.8 tells you exactly what happened to Balaam. He got what he wanted, by the way. He got his wages, but he didn't realize what he was working for, and that was just his death. And for him, it was his eternal death. What obvious truth have you been overlooking? See, we need to be discerning when it comes to false teachers. See them for who they really are, pretentious, perverse, and consumed with their priority, and make sure we respond to them biblically, which was never to cater or compromise with them. Yet do not miss the tendencies that come up in our own hearts. We need to identify them and eradicate them with the same fervor shown by Peter. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come uh, to be uh, gathered together as your people and worshiping you. Our priority is you, Lord. Uh, We come together to worship you because you deserve it. Uh, Yes, it is our responsibility, but we should do it with willing and loving hearts. This should be the priority of uh, of our lives. We are to be your light and life in this world. We are to broadcast your good news, proclaimers of what you've done for humanity. Give us the courage and the discernment to see where lies are surrounding us, to not be duped into being okay with certain sins by the false teachers that are out there. And Lord, give us discernment to recognize in our own hearts our resistance to truth. As we look at this, and and many of us at different angles and levels uh, that we'll see uh, where we grab the reins of our life or we grab for our own authority, and ignore what you've clearly told us. I hope, Lord, that you'll convict all of our hearts that as we see the clear teaching of your word, that we will shape our lives there, that we will not train our lives in the sin that we want to pursue, but instead we'll be trained in your word uh, to fulfill your will here on earth, that we will glorify your name. We will not be a spot and blemish uh, on your church. Uh, but instead we'll be a light and salt to the nations around us. In your precious and holy name, amen.